I was talking over the summer with a couple of friends and we were sitting around, uh, sitting around the fire pit and reflecting on the fact that so much of the culture is different time than the cry fest or the cry different fest time. This is a different time than the cry fest. Okay. Uh, yes, thank you. You for can tell just by the clarity of memory. That's right. I remember the. Uh, I remember what we He's were talking about. He's about to about. provide specificity here. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Interrupted the specificity. Um, you still remember? listen to parts one through three of this conversation, I encourage you to do so because we're picking up right where we left off. I was talking over the summer with a couple of friends and we were sitting around, uh, sitting around the fire pit and, and uh, we were just talking about the way that the culture increasingly is moving in ways that are contrary to, to the Christian vision of morality in the world and ethics. And, and increasingly it's becoming harder and harder uh, to hold the line on that. And, uh, one of the guys was, was saying, um, we were thinking about like, where does this leave students and young people, you know, 10, 15 years from now, because there's just such cultural pressure, uh, to abandon Christian teaching on sexuality and anthropology. And, and, um, and so one of the, one of the guys was saying, I just really think that like what, what we need is we need parents who live their lives with true Christian conviction because it's just so easy just to go with the flow. And, you know, if we're compromised, how can we expect our kids not to be compromised? And, and, um, we're, we're just going to need, like we need to be willing to do the hard things and have conviction. And I think that that, that that's definitely truth and truth in that, you know I mean? And, and probably four months ago I would have been like, that's exactly what I think. But it was in the middle, like towards the end of my sabbatical, and um, and what I felt like I was getting to the place was like like what I've had in spades is Christian conviction, but what I haven't had is joy. Hmm. And then I thought, like, what will get our kids through the choppy waters of our culture? Like, what will help them stay the course with Christ? And I don't think it's conviction. I think it's joy. I think they need to see in us true Christian joy that comes from being in a joy-filled, loving relationship with Christ. Like that is what gives us, the joy of the Lord is our strength. To go back to what you said earlier, Johnny, the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's not the convictions of our soul that are the strength, but the Hmm. joy of the Lord is our strength. Hmm. And I just... I just think like joy is it's hard to get. At least it's been hard for me to get, you know, maybe others can get their easier true Christian joy, but like that's hard to get. Uh, 
And I, I think like when I couldn't reach joy, I just like fell back on conviction, you know, and conviction, I mean, God bless us all, but like the Pharisees had conviction, like you can get conviction without the spirit of God, but you can't get joy without the spirit of God. And, and I just think like what will give our kids life is not our convictions, but our joy. And I think we need convictions because convictionless joy ends up becoming mushy and it's not, not of the spirit. But like if all we have is the tenacity of our convictions, I just think that won't be enough. Won't be enough for our kids and it's not enough for us. I just, I think we need, we need joy. I think like that's like the point of human beings is to be bare before God and receive his love that then empowers you to do things with conviction and extend mercy and extend love. Cause love is not like nobody falls into love, you know, like, cause love is like pursuing the, interests of someone else. Like you don't just kind of like do that. Like God has to empower you to love. Um, and, um, but yeah, there, there's the dangerous duty of self-sacrifice, the dangerous duty of conviction, which it's like, you're, you're still self-justifying and, and without love, it's like, uh, like I've always, I think I preached a sermon on, oh yeah, it was the series on created a need and I was doing love. And I so badly wanted to like, just get two symbols and just clang them for like a solid 30 seconds, <laughs> just a solid 30 seconds. Yeah. Just like, dish, dish, dish. Yeah. And be like, that's, that's what your conviction sounds like. That's what you're, you know, I know. Right. Oh, that's right. Circling back around. I've been, reading a lot of Montessori stuff with the little guys and just thinking about what does it mean to form desire? Cause you're born with desire, but you can shape it in such a crazy way. And I was thinking about how in, um, James K. Smith talks about like your, you actually make decisions with your gut. Like you can mm-hmm. think about it and you can pause it, but like your first decision is your gut. And I was just thinking about how do you like adjust basically your taste and how that coincides so much with like parenting and like how then once you're grown up and messed up, how do you like re yeah, reform, reform that? We can digress. But. Yeah. I mean, I think you reform it in all the ways that it got formed that should have been formed the first time. That's, that's the thing, right? It's in like community with people in community parents. with, with a face and a person and like someone reattuning you and like, you can't, you can't just, go off by yourself, you know, and get reformed. And it's like somehow that we have to like, like I want my kids to interpret whatever I've provided them as like, he did the best with what he had, you know, as opposed to like, I don't want them to interpret me based on like an ideal. 
mm. per se, mm-hmm. you know? And it doesn't mean you still don't name the deformations. The, the deficits. Yeah, and the yeah. deficits. Because all of us will have deficits as parents. It's impossible for our kids. And actually, in some ways, we should support them in their processing of our deficits. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, that's the best thing a parent can do to an adult child is, is support their processing of that. Um, and... Uh, um, yeah, so we have to name the things that we didn't have formed. Yeah. But how to do that even in a context of grace. Um, that like, yeah, because I wouldn't, I don't want a graceless processing of me by my kids. Right. I don't want it to be not critical. I'm okay with it being critical, but I want it to be graceful and loving and then we like we have those assumptions of each other, and so it's like okay, let's let's talk about that. Yeah, we could have done this. We should have done this. I wish we were in the place to do that. I wish, you know. Um, and how can we now support you moving forward in that way? Because um, it's nothing about lost time. It's like just like well, let's do the best we can with what we have now. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, kind of picking up off this theme of Johnny, what you were just saying, uh, of like grace. And, and I think like I have been confronted and, uh, comforted profoundly in new ways this summer by the grace of God. And I don't know if I'm even got all this figured out of my mind yet. So I'm going to try to give it a little bit of a go, uh, <laughs> with this, uh, now but but if you think about like the like an the world's like an engine right so like a the engine of a car it's timed so that the valves and the pistons don't whack into each other and it's got a timing belt or some other kind of device to like keep that to keep it from self-destructing um and then when an engine gets out of time like if the timing belt breaks or something all of a sudden the valves and the pistons are whacking into each other and it and it it breaks and I feel like we live in a world because of sin where like it's it's just out of time. And there are absolutes, like moral absolutes, like pistons and valves that should not conflict with each other. But because the world's out of time, they do conflict with each other. And so you you have it it's impossible to go through life. sinless. And of course we would all be like, yeah, yeah, of course you know, everyone sinned. Right. We all agree with that. But, but like even more fundamentally, like sometimes we get put in situations where we cannot help but sin. There just isn't a way out of the room without, there's only two doors to get out of that room. And both of them are sin doors. To stay in the room is sinful. To leave to the left is sinful. To leave to the right is sinful. And there's no way out except to sin. And and I think we just recoil at that. We're like, no, 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 we can't. Like, I don't want to, you know. But but when you look at the law, the way that the law is laid out, like you can't help but sin in the law. There just isn't a way to get out of it. To be Sometimes. a human is to be a human yeah. is to be forced into places where you cannot help but sin. And so God gives his 
his law and says, like, walk in this way. And in, you know, 98% of the circumstances or whatever, like, that is how you walk in the ways without sin. But, like, there will be times, because the world doesn't work right, where you're forced into this place where you're, to follow the law is to follow you into in something unloving, perhaps, or, you know, and I think about, like, you, know, you have this in the scripture, right, where, where Rahab is in Jericho, the spies come in, she hides them, and then she, the, the king of Jericho comes to Rahab and says, have you hidden the, the Jewish spies? And she lies. And she says, no, uh, they left uh, by the gate, and if you hurry, you can overtake them. And the king rides off to try to find them. And, and then in, in James chapter 2, the fact that she lied to the king to protect the spies becomes the basis of her justification before God. And I've heard exegetes kind of try to work through that, and they're like, well, well like it wasn't a sin because it was, you know, whatever, right? But, but maybe that's the point is like she's put in a position where she told a lie. Like it's either tell a lie and throw over the Jewish spies and be unfaithful to the God that she wants to worship, you know, or tell the lie to protect the spies, right? And so I I don't know that I can quite connect all of this to like why I feel like I learned this in a new way this summer, but maybe part of it, what it is, it was feeling like uh, a little bit of like this, the, um, my need to be right, to like have integrity and to do the right thing. Like I, I just, so much of my life, like I've always had that. Uh, and, and, and it's great and it's good. And I'm not, I don't plan to get rid of it. Like I'm going to try to hang on to that. But, but the, there is, the, there's a danger there that just leads to a Phariseeism. And the Pharisees, I think, like when they messed up, was what the law taught them, should have taught them, was that it's impossible to be perpetually clean. That's what the law should have taught them. But they took the provisions of the law that allowed them to be clean momentarily, ceremonially, for certain occasions and feasts, and they tried to organize their entire life by that. And they could not and would not accept the fact that they might have sin in their life or that they might encounter moments where they can't help but be unclean. And so they dedicated themselves to being clean, to being sinless. And in the end, they became totalizing and bludgeoning to themselves and they became totalizing and bludgeoning to the people. And... um there's a passage in Ecclesiastes chapter seven, and I've I've never quite known what to do with it. But this summer, I feel like all of a sudden I was like, oh, I think maybe that's sort of what the Lord's saying to me. But where it, it he says, uh, uh, don't be uh, overly wicked, uh, and don't be overly righteous. It's good to uh, hold on to both. And the wise man avoids all extremes. I've always thought, like, don't be overly righteous. Like, that seems like a strain. Like, you should avoid the wickedness. I get that. But don't be overly righteous. And I feel like 
the person that strives to be overly righteous in a way that denies the inevitability of sin, you know, as, as Solomon says, you destroy yourself before your time. You know, like there is, so I don't know. I, I'm still trying to work through that because it's scary to be like, oh, well, there's sometimes where you can't help but sin and then, you know, you're just making excuses for yourself and whatnot. And I, and I, but there is a tenacity with which we try to hold on to our integrity that will tend towards Phariseeism if we're not. We don't have a category for the fact that we may at times just be put in positions where we can't help but sin. And that God, in his grace, doesn't just cover it when we sort of mess up, but he he covers it even when we choose sin. I mean, I feel like I'm saying stuff that's obvious that we all should know, but in another sense, it's just like it's impressed upon me in fresh ways uh, this summer, how, how very deep the grace of God goes. I was talking about some of this with my, with one of my friends and, and uh, I was saying something to the degree of like, I just feel like I'm, you know, supposed to, you know, have some big monumental life change and, you know, should follow Christ all the way to some cross, you know, whatever. And he said, uh, he said, sometimes when I feel like God's asking me to do something and it's like super hard like that, I just, I just say, God, we're just going to have to do plan B because I, I can't do plan A. And I, and I chuckled, but then I thought, I never do plan B because plan B is sin. That's compromise. And I was telling my counselor this, and uh, my counselor, he said, oh, I like your friend. He said, that's good. And he said, um, he said, I think you need to learn to presume on grace. And that was an interesting thing for me to wrestle with because I've always thought of presuming on grace as a bad thing. But I wonder if in the same way that there is simplicity on the other side of complexity, there is a right kind of presuming on grace and a wrong kind of presuming on grace. And I just think again, to go back to my parenting, like what kind of parent Or what kind of childhood experience would you have if you could not presume on the grace of your parents? And that you you were in doubt of your parents' grace. And you you were working without a net. And if you fell, you couldn't you couldn't presume that grace was there. And how freeing it is in a God honoring way to presume upon his grace. I just think he invites us into that. Not to abuse it, but to presume on it, to believe that it is there. When we do our best and when we don't do our best, the grace of God is still is still there. So. It's almost as if it's better to negatively presume on grace than to never presume at all. I think almost, you know, I mean, that's the story of the two sons. Right. No, that's right. That's a good point. And it's like, yeah. That's right. That's right. And if you, if you negatively presume 
on grace, it'll make you a libertine. And if you never presume on grace, it'll make you a Pharisee. And there is a way through that complexity where you come out the other side and you presume on grace in the right way. Yes. And it makes you a Christian. Yeah. I feel like this call to, I got to like give up everything, sell the poor. And like, I can't do it. Like, like I just, I needed the grace of God to meet me in that space because I couldn't get there, you know? And I don't know, you know, I'm not quite sure how to say like when it's a, like a, a right kind of presuming on grace and a bad kind of presuming on grace. I think, yeah, maybe like what makes the good kind of presuming on grace and the bad kind of presuming on grace is like when you genuinely love God and you genuinely are living in his love, then you'll realize that you do need to presume on his grace because you can't get through life without it. But when you don't care about his love and you don't love him, that probably leads to like the libertine sort of abuse of presuming on grace. Or when you don't actually think you need grace, then that's like the Pharisee form of like presume non-presuming on grace, right? Yeah, I mean, I would say my conversion to Christ, there was, it was very much a real, like, stark revelation of how presumptuous I was upon God. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because it was like, it was like blatant and obvious, you know, and I'm like looking at the choices I was making in life and then looking at the love of God in the cross. Yeah. Just made me feel so um, presumptuous. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I mean, this is, I think I, I can't remember where I've heard this. I think it actually might've been Piper. Actually, he had said he'd, you know, in his church, he'd rather have um, the alcohol than the legalist. Cause at least you can smell the alcohol. Yeah. Alcoholic, <laughs> right. Yeah. You know? And so that's what, like, um, and then you have the, which is one of my favorite texts, the one who's forgiven little loves little, the one who's forgiven much loves much. I mean, that's thoroughly tied up into what you're talking about, presumption of grace. I mean, it's like, how do you raise your kid on that ethic? Yeah. Is, that, is that an ethic? You know, like, how do I raise my kids to like be maximal lovers of God if they have to be forgiven much? You know? Well, and I think like even what you just shared about like with your testimony, like it's, it's here you were in sort of a negative libertine way, presuming on grace. Yeah. Right. But like what it's like seeing the love, like the love of God in Christ yeah. is like moved you from presuming on grace in a libertine way to presuming on grace in a right way. You know, like transformative way. Yeah, in a transformative way. Because it's man, it's just I just I don't know that presuming on grace is like the right way to say it, right? But in some ways I feel like that that because I so had so much of my life where like you never presume on grace. It was like I I've like I needed to hear that in a way that's almost like shocking to the system, right? Of like and and I do think like I I want my kids to presume that I am gracious. Like I want them to think that. 
I don't want them to abuse it, but I do want them when they're scared or when they mess up or when they do some, whatever, yeah. like to be like, my dad's gracious. Yeah. It, I think it goes to show when you've tried to be good your whole life, it's really hard to receive the grace of God. Yeah. And I, I think for me, it's like I had clear moments in my life where I was not at all trying to be good. Yeah. So like there's these like, and so now I'm, I am trying to be good. I'm trying to be a good pastor, good man, good husband, good father. And it's harder to live in the, the grace of God in that way, you know? Yeah. And it's hard. Like, it's like almost, I got to go back to like, to your point of presumption on grace, um, instead of trying to prove myself, you know? And, um, but I also have a moment in my life where it was like, it was evident. I was not trying to be good. And if you grew up in a Christian home and you're trying to be good your whole life, at some point at adulthood, you got to come to like the mess that is because you were many of those pursuits, at least growing up in the Christian church and home I grew up or school I grew up in is like, people are actually pretty good at like being good, right, <laughs> you know, at yeah. least on the outside. Right. Yeah. And they go on to college and go and have families and they all look great. But at what point do you receive grace? Yeah. And I, I don't know if this is going to, work or not, but the, one of the passages that really or stories in the new Testament that's really just sort of gripped me. I think about like Peter right before Jesus is arrested and he's like, I'm with you all the way to the end. I'll go, I'm, you know, I'll die with you, you know, kind of a thing. And if, even if everyone else, to, you know, abandons you, not me. And I think he really means it. They get to the garden, the soldiers come to arrest Jesus Peter, I think he still means it, right? He jumps out with his sword, hacks off an ear. I think he's probably going for like the head or something there, you know, but like he's, he's willing to go all the way. And then Jesus stops it. And then Jesus says to the soldiers, let these go. You don't, you didn't come for these. You only came for me. Let them go. And so they all flee. But then Peter like goes back to the courtyard and I think he's still he's still committed to the cause. Like he's gone to the courtyard because he's trying to figure out how he's gonna like help Jesus. Like what is he gonna do? He doesn't know exactly, but he's like he's like scoping it out. So then when he gets to the gate and they're like, Are you one of his disciples? And he's like, No, I'm not. I think that's like strategy for him. He's like not trying to deny Christ. He's like, I gotta get in the courtyard. If I tell him I'm one of Jesus' followers, they're not letting me in and I can't help him. So he's like, No, I'm not. And then he's at the fire and the servant girl calls him out. And again, he says, no, I'm not. You know, he kind of, and again, I think he's strategizing. And I don't think it's until the third time that he denies knowing Jesus and the cock crows that he realizes what he's done. And the words of Jesus come back and are like, you are going to disown me three times. And Luke's gospel has Jesus turn and look at Peter across the courtyard and I, I felt like, I felt like this summer, I felt like Peter in that moment. Like, I, like, I'm like, oh Lord, I'll go all the way. I'll go all the way. I'll go all the way with you. And then like in this moment of like, well then here, go into that room, a dark, ominous room. 
and like I couldn't do it, I felt like Peter in the courtyard. And then, like, what was the face of Christ when he looked at Peter in that moment? And I don't think it was judgment. What I think it was, I think it was Jesus saying or thinking, like, Peter, I, I didn't ask you to this spot. Like, I didn't call you to be right here in this moment. Like, I, when the soldiers came, I, I told them to let you go because this is too much for you. Like I've already told you it's too much for you. You shouldn't be here. This isn't what I called you. But I love you and like I I'm like I feel compassion for you in this moment. And I think like Peter's pride like pulled him to a cross that he could not bear. And his zeal pulled him to a cross that he could not bear that Jesus hadn't called him to. Like Jesus wasn't asking him to do that. But then Jesus comes to him after the resurrection, right? And he takes Peter aside and he's like, just like he, he puts him back into ministry. You know, Peter, I think had such shame because he couldn't follow through with what he thought he should do. Like the calling that he gave to his own life that, that not even Jesus had given to him you know, in that time. And it's like, uh, maybe that's like this idea of, for me, of like presuming on grace or like the grace of God in new ways, you know, like where, I think like what Peter thought he could have and should have been able to do, he couldn't do it. And like Christ was still gracious to him. So, uh, you know, Johnny, you're making the point, like, you know, if we've kind of, like, been good our whole lives. Like, I, you know, <laughs> have, I have been good my whole life, and uh, I've been pretty good at being good. And and I would say not only good at being good on the outside, I've been pretty good at being good on the inside, too. Um, and it was like I just got confronted with something that was just beyond me. It was just beyond me. At least in that moment, it was beyond me. And... I don't think Christ was calling me to it, but I think like it, it revealed sort of the, the ends of my strength. And in that moment, it's like I needed, I just needed the grace of Christ to meet me in my weakness in ways that I had not experienced before. Oh, I think there's so many moments in your story that people can pull out and like hold up to their own experience mm. and resonate with. Yeah. So I think there's so much value in your willingness to share. Thank you. Thank you. You know the good kid growing up, that was me. I was voted most likely to be a priest. And I thought I could not let anyone down. My definition of the way to be kind was to lose myself and to shun desire. I thought I had life figured out. But I, oh, I'm different now. Special thanks to Andy Gillahorn 
for use of his song, Different Now. Have a great week, Calvary family.